Father, as we'll see today in the, the book of Revelation, as we continue our study there, that your name is above all names. You, you are King of kings and Lord of lords, the Almighty. Lord, we stand amazed in your presence. And as we, as we continue through our worship today, looking into your word, Lord, open our, our hearts. Give us insight and perspective that perhaps we did not have coming in this morning, that we might worship you better, that we might live our lives in a manner that is worthy of your calling. And Father, too, I would be remiss if I did not ask that you would bring to healing those who have COVID or the flu or any other of these diseases that impact us because of the fall. We especially pray for our president and first lady. We ask that this COVID would not, would not take anymore, that a vaccine would come and that we would be freed from its grips. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. So a little history, little history lesson today. And uh, it was in January of, of 49 B.C. when Gaius Julius Caesar was what was at that time the northern border of Italy. And at that time, you may know this, you may not, but Caesar was just a last name. It was like artillery or some many of your last, just the last name that he had. However, in a matter of months, Caesar would take on an entirely different meaning. A few years before that, the Roman Senate had appointed Julius as the governor over the territory of what was known as uh, southern Gaul and uh, Eliacum, which stretched from southern France, went through Switzerland, northern Italy, southern Austria, down Slovenia, Bosnia, Herzegovina. It's a huge territory that he was responsible for. Now, one of the most interesting thing about these Roman governors who would go out when they left the borders of Rome, they had what was called imperium. Imperium was the right to command troops, the right to conduct war. And it only made sense by the time you got uh, all the way back to Rome to, with, with word of what you should do in a particular action, that the action would be done. And so they had the ability to command. However, in 50 B.C., one year before, Rome said, Julius, it's time to come home. It's time to come home and take your place in Roman life in Rome. Maybe you can make a name for yourself. Who, who knows? And so it was that he stood on the northern border, which just happened to be a little bitty river. It's not a big river at all. There are many larger rivers in Italy, but this little river was called the Rubicon. And as he stood on the Rubicon next to it, he pondered as to whether he would give up his imperium or not. 
And he decided he would not. And as he ordered his men to cross the river, the 13th Legion, he precipitated the Roman Civil War. And it is said that he said, the die is cast. Unknown to him, who would know? No one knows the future. A mere five years later, this action would take his life. And many other people who we know from history would spring up. Mark Antony, Cleopatra, Brutus, Pompey, and there would be battles and wars. But the truth is, at that moment, the old republic, which had lasted for 500 years, was gone. The days of imperial Rome had come. Now, when Barbara and I visited Rome, which, by the way, if you ever uh, go to Italy, Rome is worth going once. <laughs> no, it's Rome is like New York, except for it's got a couple of ruins in it. So I don't I'm not a fan of big cities, but I do love the ruins. And one of the most uh, in, in places other than the Colosseum that stirred our imagination was when we walked the Via Sacra. That's the road that led from the Colosseum up to the, the Capitol. And it's second only to the Via Della Rosa. I mean, the Via Della Rosa, what can you say? Jesus Christ walked that road. But the Via Sacra, Julius Caesar himself walked that very road. In fact, he conducted what was called a triumphal procession on that very road. Augustus, you remember Augustus from the Bible, who decreed that everyone should return for the census. He, too, walked that road. Caligula, if you've ever heard of him, he lived on it. The Apostle Peter and Paul, based on where the Mamertine prison is, walked that road as well. It really stirs the imagination. It's one of the only places in Rome that has been kept in its ancient form. Now, the Apostle Paul never referred to the Via Sacra by way. By the way, sacra, sacrament, sacramental, you might think, ooh, that's something religious. Well, it was because the street was lined with all these temples to all these different gods, and which is, of course, why they walked through that particular way. They, most of them, of course, uh, turned to churches uh, after... Uh, Constantine, but regardless, that, that's, that's the name. But even though Paul didn't mention it by name, he didn't need to. Everyone in Rome, everyone in the Roman Empire knew exactly what it was. In 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16, Paul writes, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Now, those aren't just two words that Paul put together. It has a very specific meaning. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. So even though the Apostle Paul... Uh, wrote 2 Corinthians about four years before his first imprisonment, everyone knew what he was talking about. 
Paul knew what he was talking about, and all his readers did too. Paul wrote about it, and later he undoubtedly uh, witnessed it as well. They were heralded events. Like this little, this little road, right, it's only two and a half miles long. Two and a half miles long. But these triumphal processions, depending on what the victory was, could take up to three days to go two and a half miles. I mean, so this was a, this was a big, big deal. And so typically what would happen is the very first people in this processional would be the defeated leaders, the rulers, the kings or the generals, those, those types. And then their allies and then behind them their soldiers, of course, all of them in uh, chains. Then following that, they had the captured weapons and armor and gold and silver and statuary and whatever exotic treasures they could find, they just put them on, put them on wagons so that as it went by, seemingly forever, everybody could see the riches now that Rome was gaining because of this defeat. And then after all the treasures, the Roman senators and the magistrates and all the bigwigs in Rome, they walked behind. And then finally you had the, the victorious general in his chariot. If he had little children, they would be in the chariot with him and his uh, elder sons and his senior officers would be on horses around him. And then a very interesting thing, which becomes interesting to our uh, text today, is that following him would be his armies. And the interesting thing about that is not one of them was armed. They were all in white togas as they marched through this uh, procession, which took so long. And all of this was done to uh, the dancing and music and, and flowers everywhere and just great clouds of incense. We don't have anything like it here, uh, I, I don't think, except for perhaps Mardi Gras, but that's a weird sort of a thing. Although in Italy, it's not. It's a, actually, in, in Italy, Mardi Gras is a, a family, very family-oriented, huge parade. But we don't have much like that. Maybe a ticker tape parade would be, would be closer. But nevertheless, we don't have many celebrations like that. But that incense would just cover the entire place. You could smell it for square miles in and. And that smell held entirely different meanings for all the people who were there. Think of that smell as the, the wives and the children watched for their husbands as they were, they were coming down to see he's home. Finally, we can have a time of togetherness and rest. I mean, for the officers in charge, it meant really great opportunities for financial, political, and military gain. For the foot soldiers, I'll tell you what it meant for them. It just meant I'm alive. And they were going to spend their time just trying to get the war behind them. But for the general, of course, he was the man of the hour, the undisputed champion of Rome. Riches and honor were his. His family name would now be etched on buildings and statuary. But for the defeated leaders, that same smell meant humiliation. For all, it meant slavery. 
It meant death for some by execution or the arena. Romans 5.10 and Colossians 2.15 tell us that through Christ, God the victor has vanquished his enemies. And Paul, Christ's... You need to read this. And the reason I'm giving all this background is because our text actually stands on this. That Paul was now marching in that triumphal procession who had been taken captive by Christ and now led. This is triumph in defeat. This is the paradox of the Christian life. Paul was a slave who was free. I mean, the paradox of Christ is that if you want to live, you must die. The Apostle Paul's word prefigure a day when Christ would literally come in triumphal procession. So now we come to it. Turn in your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 19 and we'll read verses 11 through 16. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. The Apostle John says, Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse the one sitting on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he, was, he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword which, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Now, at first glance, this does not appear to be a, a triumphal Procession. Indeed, this is Christ at the head of his armies uh, going to do battle at Armageddon. And, and even though it is a reference to Armageddon, the picture is not really a picture of a pitched battle. It is the picture of the defeated enemy in advance of Christ being humiliated and destroyed at the front of Christ's triumphal procession. And this is to be contrasted, not just with that, but in the life of Christ in particular, as John MacArthur notes, that it's to be compared with Christ's triumphal entry when he appeared in humiliation on a cult. And, and the Jews did not expect that. What they expected was to see him appearing on the white horse in order to destroy Rome. That's not what happened. But what they did not expect at all was that this Christ on the colt and this Christ on the white horse would be one and the same. Revelation 1.7 tells us, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. 
So it's just here that they'll realize that they've crucified the Lord of glory. And as John gazed into heaven, he sees Christ on this white horse, symbolizing the the spotlessness, the unblemished, the absolute holiness of the character of the writer. Faithful and true, he is called. He's faithful to keep all his promises and what he speaks is always true. I mean, because Jesus is faithful to his word, he is faithful to follow his righteous character in all things, all things, even the things that we can't see through, the things that are difficult for us to understand. But he also, because of his righteous character, when he judges, he judges righteously. You know, when he, when he came to earth the first time, Wicked people judged him, but when he returns, he will judge the wicked. So we see the picture here that we're to see is closer to a triumphal entry than it is to any kind of a a, a battle. Christ is pictured here as the triumphant king who's executing judgment on those who are in the front of the procession. It says here that, that uh, I mean, we understand this because it says his eyes are a flame of fire. So one of the things that is just a tremendous uh, comfort to us on this earth now is that Jesus Christ and his present standing and how he's working with the earth is the same as it was when he was on earth in the sense that, I mean, he wept over Jerusalem. He, he wept over uh, Lazarus. Those, those eyes show a tremendous compassion that he has for us. But there will come a day when that will be met with fierce judgment. His eyes are flashing with fire. And we see something else about this rider. He has the right to rule. You see that by the diadems that he wore, which is an interesting thing because most of the crowns that are spoken of in the book of Revelation are victor's crowns. They're the crowns that one would win by winning a race, having some sort of uh, victory like that. But these that's not what these are. The diadems are reserved only for rule, only for authority. And he has this right to rule. In fact, uh, in one of the triumphal processions, I can't remember which general it was, but he wore three crowns uh, for the different nations that he, he, had, uh, he had conquered. But Christ has many of, uh, of these, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Word of God. We see something else about Christ in this picture too. A sword. A sword that comes uh, from his uh, mouth. Now, please don't have, be, uh, have too creative of a literal imagination here. Christ does not have a sword coming out of his mouth. What do you think the Bible is called? What do we call it? It's the it's a sword. We, what, does, what comes out of a person's mouth? Their words. 
And Christ is the word of God. And this word will be used to strike down uh, the nations. I mean, we've seen this sword before. We saw it in the book of Revelation chapter 1. And there as here, it was a sword of divine judgment. In Revelation chapter 2, it was reserved for those who were in opposition to the church. And here it is the nations who are in opposition to Christ, but he strikes them uh, down. And so in this processional, Jesus Christ is not alone. Okay, so that he's followed by his armies. And I want you to just draw that parallel back to the triumphal procession. None of these people, none of these beings are dressed for combat. They are all dressed in fine linens on white horses as they move forward. When you look at that and you compare it, you begin to see that what would happen is that these people would follow the general on the tri uh, triumphal procession and they're all dressed in white togas. They're unarmed and they're all shouting the same thing, Eo Triumphe, which is Latin or somewhere near Latin. That means I triumph. In other words, not they triumph, but the, the ruler triumphs. And our whole part in this Battle is really to shout a triumph song for Jesus Christ. Because by the time we get there, it's already done. It's done. Christ's armies are not there to fight. The judgment here is all divine. We're to shout His praises. We will engage in no battle because the battle will be finished. I mean, now the earthly armies, they'll have been fighting for a while. In fact, Zechariah tells us that on the day the Lord Jesus Christ returns, there will actually be house-to-house -house fighting in Jerusalem itself. But upon Christ's return, it will be over. And a mere moment is, is too fast. It will simply be done. Now, who are these armies? Um, I believe it's far more than the church, especially since John uses plural armies. Uh, now, that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, that could be some sort of a, a, a hierarchical divisions and that sort of thing, but I, I don't think so. I think it's more than that. I think it's the saints from all the ages, but I also believe that it's the holy angels. And if you'll recall in the book of Matthew in 2531, Jesus, when he's speaking of his own return, says that all the angels will come with him and that they would together together as chosen ones still alive on the earth. They will see the Son of Man coming in on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Now, again, John tells us that he wore these crowns. And the whole point of that is, if you understand the meta narrative of the Bible, the whole of the Bible, it's about the kingdom of God. And it's all about his right 
to rule. From beginning to end, it's about the right of Christ to rule, and we see it here. He alone is the ruler of the earth. The seventh trumpet in Revelation 11 and verse 15 says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. All these diadems that He wears are, are in stark contrast to the crown of thorns that He wore when He was mocked by wicked men. And there will be no mocking this time. And John gives us this, this name, this wonderful name, uh, the, the Word of God. We've seen that before. I mean, in the Gospel of John, he uses it four times in the first 14 verses where he's talking about Jesus is called the Word. In fact, in John, uh, we're told that Jesus is in the flesh, the Word of life. And he's called the Word of God because he's the Creator, God spoke and these things came to be. He's the, the giver of life. But He's also the second person of the, the Trinity in Colossians 2, 9 and 10. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him you have been made complete. He is the head over all rule and authority. As the Word of God the revelation of God to man, He will be the judge. He will be the king. John also writes something he picks up from Psalm 2, that Christ will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And that's actually described, describing the millennial kingdom, where he says in Psalm 2, He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them, then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my King upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance." in the very ends of the earth is your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. So, so Christ is going to rule in the millennium where there will be no rebellion because He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one whose power and majesty will be shown as He judges the earth. And at the end of Psalm 2, there's an invitation. There's a blessing. The psalmist writes this, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So Henry Ironside, some of you may be familiar with him, he, in writing about these names of Christ that John 
gives us in this passage says this. It will be noticed then that in these three names we have set forth, first, our Lord's dignity as the eternal Son, second, His incarnation, the Word became flesh, and lastly, His second advent to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. John 1.3 tells us that all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing that came into being has come into being. I mean, His, his first advent was given to us by His life. His second advent is going to be Him taking back what is rightfully His to rule. He was killed for us on the cross in our place. And He rose from the dead, triumphant over sin and death, that we, so that we might have hope in Christ. But the second advent is a glorious procession when He comes to execute judgment and establish a thousand-year reign unlike any other of peace and prosperity. So when Caesar stood at the Rubicon, he knew there were only two options for him. To give up the imperium and return to the Senate or to keep it for himself and begin a civil war. He decided to keep it. And he brought about imperial Rome. And while that may work from time to time in the politics of mankind, it never works in the kingdom of God. God demands that we come to him empty-handed so that he can give to us his love and his grace through Jesus Christ. It's when we maintain the imperium. It's when we maintain that my will is my will. It's not thy will. I will do as I choose. We will never be happy. We'll never be satisfied. It may be that today you are standing on the Rubicon. What shall it be? Will you keep your life and lose life eternal? Or will you give it up and present it to Christ so that you may gain life? In 2010, I, there was a movie that came out that I enjoyed in uh, many ways. Uh, but one of one of which is I really like uh, Sandra Bullock as an actress, and uh, she won the Academy Award for this. Perhaps you remember it. It's uh, she portrayed uh, Leanne uh, Tui in The Blind Side. So this film depicts uh, a Christian family who took in a homeless young man and gave him a chance to reach his God-given potential, Michael Orr. And he not only dodged the, the hopelessness of his dysfunctional inner city upbringing, he became a first-round draft pick, right, for the uh, Baltimore Ravens. You might be a Ravens fan, I'm not. 
I'm kind of a solo guy. It's not the Texans. <laughs> but anyway, Sean uh, Tui said this. He noted uh, that was uh, the husband. That was Leanne's husband. He noted that the transformation of his family and Michael all started with two words. And that was when, if you saw the movie, it was at night, but it really wasn't. It was actually early in the morning, and it was freezing cold. And Michael was walking down the road in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt, freezing. And they went past him. They drove right past him. And he says this. He said, Our lives changed when Leanne uttered two words. Turn around. They turned around and they asked Michael if he would like a ride. And he got in their warm vehicle and ultimately he became part of their family. Do you know what do you know what the word repent means? That's what it means. It means turn around. And I, there are so many times that we drive right past things in our lives. And we say someone else will take care of that. And that, that thing that we pass could be sin in our own lives. And we say, ah, that's, it's, it's alright. It was a little thing. And yet, we see that if we turn around, those two words may change the rest of our direction in life. And we are now on this side. I want to be among the armies of Christ as He returns to earth. I do not want to be among those who battle at Armageddon because I chose to maintain my own will. So whatever your situation, whatever your story, a great story and a wonderful change could be yours with just those two words. Father, we turn to You We understand that You are King of kings, that You are Lord of lords, that You will reign, that You have the right to rule, that we are Your subjects. And when we determine to keep our own will, when we determine to keep our own imperium, we cause a civil war in our own hearts because we're not built to follow our will. We're built to follow Yours. So Lord, strengthen and encourage us. Help us as we go through these difficult days understanding that You lead us in procession even now. Even now we are the aroma to some, the aroma of death, to others, the aroma of life. 